Hello and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saadeh. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Thanks to Manny Mestis for that opening music and just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at C Miriam, that's C M I R I A M. And you can listen to previously aired episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, amongst many other podcast sites. You can also reach our show at RadicalNewsRadioHour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. On today's episode, we'll have a pre-recorded interview with City, uh, City of Minneapolis Council Member Jeremiah Ellison, who represents Ward 5 in North Minneapolis and near North. And just a reminder, again, if you've got any feedback, please email us. Again, that's the Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com. I spoke with Councilmember Ellison on Monday about what defunding the police and dismantling the police actually means, what the alternatives are to our current models of policing, and what his big vision is. Ellison is organized for dismantling the uh, Minneapolis Police Department since Jamar Clark was killed by Minneapolis in November 2015. Just a note, there's a couple of quick audio issues in the next segment, the perils of trying to do journalism while socially distant. Here's that interview with Councilmember Ellison. You know, modern day policing has basically three, three pillars, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that it sprung out of, um, you know, and I don't know what order you could put them in, uh, but if I had to guess an order, I would say that, uh, you know, a lot of folks have talked about and correctly linked between and how that still sort of lives with the DNA of modern day policing. I would say that uh, after slavery was over, uh, vagrancy laws, uh, the ways in which police were uh, criminalized, were asked to criminalize homelessness and arrest people. Um, and, and, and incarcerate them simply for being homeless, um, and, um, and union busting, which is ironic because now, um, despite the fact that uh, police were often brought in as the muscle to put working-class people in line, uh, they now um, sort of benefit from some of the strongest union protections uh, without ever identified with the union movement. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so I, I think that that's, uh, I think that that's sort of an interesting paradox that we sort of live in, but yes, slave catching vagrancy laws and, um, or the enforcing vagrancy laws and union busting are the DNA of American policing. Mm-hmm. And that really what keeps people safe, where in that model is prevention, uh, of violence, where in that model is, um, is justice, right? And so in a lot of ways, some people have said, oh, but I know good police officers who come in to do the right thing. And I'm, and I agree, I say, so do I, right? Uh, but if the DNA of the work is inherently problematic and doesn't aim towards safety, mm-hmm. then good people doing this work are set up to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that you've seen that I think you've seen that um, in in a lot of cases that I've had to either settle or or have come across my desk as a council member. But I, I think that you even see that in the in the murder of George Floyd, 
um, where uh, where Officer King, um, who was the black officer, who was a rookie, mm-hmm. um, there was an article written about him how when he came into the force, he told his loved ones that he was going to come in and fix policing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was convinced that all it took was good people with the right intentions to ha- to to do the job, and I think that we're all discovering that you know. Um, I can't speak to his character. I don't know him as a person, but let's say that he was a good person who came into policing for all the right reasons. Um, but on that day, he found himself complicit uh, and aiding and abetting in the murder of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think that you're going to see, I think, I think that that sort of proves, you know, that good folks getting into this work are set up to fail. Yeah. So thinking big picture, what's, the vision. I mean, if you're going to, if we're naming alternatives to policing, sure. and I believe yeah. we should, I think in many ways we need to start with vision before we start with the how-to. So what's the vision? I think the vision is for us to start with prevention because right now we only have response. I think we start with prevention and then we work our way towards response. Mm-hmm. And what does violence prevention look like? Right. Violence prevention means identifying and intercepting potentially violent incidences before they occur. Now, you're not going to bat 100. And so you're still going to need to, you know, uh, get, uh, have a response for when things occur, for when people's safety is violated and they need support. Um, but I think that even when we get to response, the support should really be about remedy for victims, which our current response is also not that. Mm-hmm. Our current response is designed to deliver brutality to the perpetrator. Um, and uh, and if that worked, sure, fine, great, let's do that. But it hasn't worked. Case in point, we had a situation in which um, uh in Minneapolis, where I can't get into too many of the details because it's because some of it's is private information, but we settled a case in which uh, one party uh, assaulted a second party, and it happened on a police body cam. So the police chased down the first party, and they arrest him. In the process, they end up beating him so bad that he then sues the city, um, and gets and is awarded damages. Mm-hmm. Because in the process of his arrest, he was injured so bad, bad. Now, he assaulted someone on camera. And when we asked, all right, so we did, we made mistakes in, in arresting him, but did we at least um, support the victim that he assaulted? And, uh, and, and, and was he charged with assault that he clearly committed? And they said, well, no, because we don't really know who that victim is, even though we have them on camera. Because none of us went to go check on the victim, and the good, and the, and eventually the victim got up and, and and wandered away from the scene before we ever had a chance to uh, get their name or uh, uh, see how they were doing, mm-hmm. and they never filed charges. And I'm thinking, how did we mess this up? Here we have this person's, you know, we have the first party's deed caught on camera, but we were so preoccupied with punishing the first party. But the second party, as the victim, was left completely unattended, right? Mm-hmm. That's a failure. 
that's a failure for us to seek justice for that person. It's a failure for us in, in us seeking remedy. And and if the only thing that happened was that we didn't prevent the assault, um, we didn't um, uh, we didn't support the victim. We don't even know who the victim is, and we assaulted the perpetrator of the violence so badly that 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 we ourselves became more in the wrong than them, and then had to pay them. Mm -hmm. That's an all-around failure of policing. Mm -hmm. So the vision, in my opinion, is to start with prevention and then center our response on remedy for victims Mm -hmm. of violence. We also have to understand that police only spend about 4% of their time interfacing with violent incidences. 4%. -hmm. Most of what they're doing is... um, is uh, is 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 uh, addressing crimes or non-crimes that are inherently non-violent. Mm-hmm. So you might think of like something like noise complaints, traffic stops, and those kinds of things. Um, but we know that when it comes to traffic stops in particular, that it is often. Um, uh, that, that traffic stops are executed in our current system, in our current model, with extreme racial bias. Mm-hmm. And that a cop is more likely to pull over, um, uh, not only more likely to pull over a black, a black person um, when they're driving, but also more likely to, um, to search their vehicle mm-hmm. and request to search their vehicle. Um, a lot of these stops, they turn up with nothing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, 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 but the amount of frustration and uh, that has uh, that has been established in those kinds of interactions mm-hmm. is really long lasting with mm-hmm. the person who stopped for no reason and searched for no reason. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, in the case of, of George Floyd, the cops were responding to a supposed fake twenty dollar bill that he had used to purchase groceries mm-hmm. from that store. Mm-hmm. He had four. Do we need four people with guns and use of force training to respond to that call? Mm-hmm. Do you need Do you need someone with guns and use of force training to respond to a noise complaint? Mm-hmm. I think the answer is no, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then even if you move to situations that maybe are a little trickier, right? So uh, I'm thinking of immersion. Uh, we have this thing called EDP calls, mm-hmm. emotionally disturbed persons calls. Mm-hmm. This is typically someone who is in the throes of a, of a mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. Now, every once in a while, you might have someone in, in, um, in the throes of a mental health crisis threatening to uh, self-harm, and maybe they have a knife or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and people say, well, you can't send in, you know, you can't send in people with no uh, protection to that call. Um now that's the extreme of that call, but often, ninety percent of EDP calls or more, um, people aren't armed. People don't have weapons, and probably what they need most, more than anything, is somebody with mental health expertise. Even the person with the knife needs that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but definitely, all those other people need that. Um, and what they don't need is someone who has no idea how to support someone going through a mental health crisis. That then comes and is going to restrict their 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 movement, um, uh, 
assault them, handcuff them, um, all all while they're extremely aggravated, and 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 the, and the officer has no idea why, right? Mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of it, a lot of situations in which you could have someone who has a different set of expertise, whether it is a uh, mental health professional, whether it is a childhood development professional uh, coming to deal with youth uh, as opposed to police, um, whether it is, uh, you know, a lot of folks have, have talked about social workers to deal with folks who are experiencing homelessness, um, medical professionals to deal with folks who are dealing with uh, uh, chemical dependency and or uh, 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 mental health crises. A lot of what the police do, they're not equipped to do, and you could have other professionals doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the vision. And now we still have to, we still have to figure out know, what is it, you know, we still have to make sure that murders are being solved. Mm-hmm. We still have to make sure that if there is a situation that is impossible to de-escalate, um, that we have a response to that. Mm-hmm. But but we've built an entire system designed for the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario often doesn't happen, but what does happen is that officers find themselves, I think, too often, um, uh, causing, um, uh, creating distrust, assaulting people who don't deserve it, and occasionally killing people. And to me, those that's too high of a price to pay. Mm-hmm. One of the conversations that I've been paying attention to is, or I should say, all of these discussions around why police abolition is wrong or the wrong step are very much steeped in discussions or in language that's upholding white supremacy or sexist or misogynistic or um, anti-LGBTQ. Like they're very much steeped in these discussions that are um, around upholding systems of oppression. Is it possible to really abolish a system like this without having to deal with those, with like the, the hegemony and the language and the narratives that are upholding those systems? Uh, I think that's a great question. You know, I think that when you, you know, and and and, and I don't know that our current uh, actions are going to lead us to genuine abolition. I'll admit that, right? And I say that as somebody who is fully open to the abolition of force. I don't know that our, I don't want to miss out on yeah. our current path is leading to that. Um, I do think that our current path will significantly dismantle the, our current form of policing. Mm-hmm. I do think that our path will significantly defund um, our current methods of policing. Mm-hmm. But I think road to abolition is a much longer road yep. that I'm not sure whether I'll be around for or not, right? Yeah. Um, but I'll say this. I think that by dismantling policing in its current form, even to the extent that we're able to do it now, whether we can reach abolition in short order or not, I think that um, I think that dismantling this system inherently addresses those to some extent, not fully, right? Dismantling the police doesn't inherently um, uh, 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 dismantle white supremacy, but it does remove one of the major tools that is used to keep, you know, 
black people subjugated, indigenous people in line, immigrants fearful uh, and in line. I think we dismantle one of the one of the primary tools. And again, you know, ultimately, the 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 root of the police and their mission um, is to sort of protect those who have from those who maybe have less. Mm-hmm. If we change the model from, you know, uh, basically property security uh, to crime, uh, violence prevention and remedy, um, then you're already inherently disrupting the, uh, uh, those systems, yeah. right? Because when a mental health, because if a mental health, because if we can figure out a system in which a mental health professional can um, adequately get to a situation in which they are the best to handle that situation, mm-hmm. um, then we're no longer centering the protection of property or people with property. We are censoring that person's well-being, mm-hmm. which is not what our current policing does. Mm-hmm. If we can. If we can gather intelligence, not for the purpose of doing a, a, a raid, but for the purpose of intercepting a potentially violent incident, mm-hmm. and then we do in, uh, intercept it and we prevent that violent incident from happening, thus preserving life um, and not just investigating murders after the fact or investigating harms after the fact. If we can lean into production uh, pr- prevention, um, uh, then, then all of a sudden we're talking about real remedies for the community mm-hmm. and we're talking about protecting property and people with property yeah. from yeah. the scare people over there. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I think that that is, a, that is fundamentally different than how capitalism uh, uh, prioritizes value, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, fundamentally different than how white supremacy prioritizes people uh, and values people. Um, and fundamentally different than how um, uh, I think our current, even judicial system, uh, uh, prioritizes justice, mm-hmm. right? Takes it away from the punitive and puts it more into the hands of, um, uh, puts it more into the hands, I think, of genuine remedy and healing. Now, that might sound kind of, um, corny to some people, but I think that if it saves lives, I don't care how corny it sounds. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm, re- I'm ready to do it. Yeah. I sometimes imagine ideas like police abolition and defunding the police and dismantling the police and even police reform on a Venn diagram. You mm-hmm. know, and and that's sort of the best way. Um, but at least me ask like. Why is police reform not the answer to what's happening with MPD and the systemic issues inherent in both MPD and in the police union? Right. I think reform's not the answer because it's proven to not be. Right. Um, we've done a lot of reforms. You know, I was looking at there's this list. I'm not going to remember them all off the top of my head, but there's like this list of eight easy reforms you can make to make your police department a better police department, right? That's been kind of going viral around the internet. And you're mm-hmm. 
gray that, right? And I'm looking at this list and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, like Minneapolis has done a lot of this stuff, you know, ma- mandatory reporting, right? Well, when officers see another officer violating someone's rights, you know, we have mandatory reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, body cameras, uh, de-escalation training. Um, we have a lot of this stuff that people want us to do. Um, you know, uh, transitioning away from this warrior mindset into uh, sanctity of life as a, as a, as the uh, as the uh, sort of centerpiece of our de-escalation training. We you know we sort of done all of the you know all of the equipment stuff and all of the training stuff that people are suggesting. We've done all of it. We have a police chief that I think has probably been one of the most trusted in the community, right? Probably we and the police chief probably more popular than any elected official in the city of Minneapolis because he has the, that that uh, that um, deep, because he has such deep roots in the community, you know, in my community on the north side, even, right? And we've seen that even with somebody as as brilliant and sensitive um, and hardworking as Chief Rondo, that we still have one, we still have these horrific outcomes, right? And not just the murder of George Floyd, but we've seen that in the last two and a half years that the department has been caught lying about the number of untested rape kids, right? Uh, our department inspired an entire series about the failing of, um, of, uh, of, of sexual assault investigations in Minneapolis and throughout the state. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've seen um, uh, we've seen the scandal surrounding um, officers instructing that to inject people with ketamine unlawfully to drug people. Uh, we've seen this happening even under the even under the best that we could do. Right. Even under um, an amazing police chief, even under uh, uh, even with all of the these things in place, we still see this really horrific outcome occurring. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that I think that um, reform has proven to not work, right? Because we've done it and we've tried it, and and for the folks just wanting to double down on this thing that we've been doing for years, right? I think I think Minneapolis started leaning into a lot of the types of reforms that people are suggesting now back in 2012. Right, and I'm sure some historian or, or 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 maybe a former council member could could even point to earlier indications that the police department was trying to re, uh, reform, um, uh, even earlier than that. You know, how much time do you give a strategy before you uh, before you give up on it? You know, uh, I think that I think that eight, ten, twenty years is enough. Mm-hmm. We've got a problem uh, with the practice of policing. Yeah. It sets good people up to fail. And it, and it empowers people who want to cause harm to do harm without consequence. Mm-hmm. In that time and again. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, thanks to Councilmember Jeremiah Ellison for speaking with me and for discussing his belief for how and why the Minneapolis Police Department should be de- defunded and dismantled. It's a conversation we're going to keep coming back to because it's something many people are shouting about, but too many people are not understanding.
You can participate in that discussion um, on dismantling NPD by emailing the Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com, by tweeting me at CMiriam, and just a reminder, you're listening to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saadet on WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. A couple of quick announcements before we finish today's episode. Cedar Artist Collective Tu Seco Lee is going to be joining Cedar Executive Director David Hamilton to host We Believe in Unity, Black and Asian Solidarity, a program today at 7.30 uh, p.m. online that explores cross-cultural uh, solidarity in the movement for justice for Black Lives Matter and Black Lives. More information is available on Facebook. And just a reminder for many of these events, I am not affiliated with any of them, but I think it's important that you know what's going on with community and I wanna make sure, sort of like a community calendar that I'm passing on the word. Um, on July 6th, the fourth annual candlelight vigil for King Philando Castile will be held from 8 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. at the Philando Castile Memorial. Please remember to practice social distancing and wear a mask for this in-person outside event. More details also on Facebook. And on July 9, from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. online, the Eastside Freedom Library and the Ramsey County Historical Society are hosting a discussion on the roots of racism in Minnesota. Authors Bill Green, Christopher Lehman, and Marty Case are going to be discussing their recently published books. Uh, more details on the Eastside Freedom Library's um, event calendar, which I highly recommend you check out because it is wonderful and full of incredible upcoming events. And as many of you know, I'm also the executive director for a small community news organization, The Uptake. This month, we're going to be hosting two community journalism trainings. The first is July 11 from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. The second is July 23rd from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. You can register on the Eventbrite. There are free tickets available as well as pay what you can tickets. I highly recommend that you check them out and get involved in the discussion on community journalism. For now, thank you for listening to the Radical News Radio Hour. You can reach us um, for any questions or with any tips at the Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com. You can find us at journalismofcolor.com and you can listen to all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and several other podcast platforms. Thanks to Manny Mestis for this episode's opening and closing theme music, as per usual. And for now, you're listening to the WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM.